We're going to look at John chapter 12 this morning, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to talk a little bit about that, and we're going to ask ourselves a question this morning, does the Bible really say that? Because sometimes it's good for us to go digging, like Douglas said, to see why we believe what we believe. Now, last couple of weeks, we've talked about different things. Last week, Pastor Jerry talked about miracles. We heard about Lazarus a few weeks. Uh, I think sometime before that, we talked about the blind man who had been healed. The, he was blind from birth, right? Remember that? And I love that story about the, blind being, the man being blind from birth because we look at that and we want to say, what a miracle, you know, theologians grab a hold of that and they say, you know, when Jesus spit in the dirt and he mixed that up into mud, of course, he was breaking Sabbath law because you're not supposed to make dough and mud is technically dough. Okay. You're taking moisture and something dry ingredient and you're making it together. That's what got Jesus in trouble. Oh, plus this fact that he used spit. Um, that's a big no, no for Jesus's time. We don't, we don't spit and put that on other people. We shouldn't do that today either. Um, but anyways, you know, you look at this blind man, and, and there are theologians that grab hold of that, and they say, oh my goodness, it is just like creation when God formed man from the dust of the ground, and Jesus is creating new eyes, and they make this big deal about the miracle of the man seeing. And that probably was a big deal, let's be real. Subsistence people have to be able to work today for their food tomorrow. We don't quite grab a hold of that in this day and age. Not in this country. But I don't know if you noticed or not. I don't think that was the miracle that happened. And I think Pastor talked a little, about, a little bit about this. You know, last week he asked us, what is the miracle in our lives that Jesus has brought about? And, and if you noticed the story of the blind man a few weeks ago, what happened? When he was first asked by his neighbors and friends, they said, well, who did this? And he says, well, it's that man they called Jesus. Then he gets hauled into to the Pharisees and they question him and they don't believe him or actually they really just don't want to agree with what he says. So then they call his parents in and his parents, they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. So what do they say? They say, oh my goodness sakes, you ask him, he's of age, go talk to him. He comes back and the next thing is he's a prophet. And then they question him some more and they really put the screws to him right there. They've got the big light focused right in on his face in the dark room. They've made him sweat. They haven't given him any water and they're really questioning him. And he kind of throws it back in their face and says, what, you guys want to become one of his disciples? He begins to just kind of throw it out to them. And he says, this is the one sent by God. In other words, this is the Messiah. I don't know if you noticed this. He went from that man they called Jesus to prophet to this is the one that God has sent. The real miracle was the change of heart that man had. And I love Pastor's comment last week, you know, the moral of his story that he told. Don't let your definition of a miracle be so narrow that you miss it when it happens. I don't know if you know this, but this really stuck with me this week. And uh, I, I've read through John chapter 12 and specifically about the foreknowledge of Jesus in regards that leads up to his sacrifice by crucifixion. And I have to tell you, there are biblical scholars who just want to say, this is all telling us that Jesus knows everything. Um, he and he, God knows everything, every little bit of it. And they build this faith on future events. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I think we've read it. I loved those Tim LaHaye books. I mean, come on, who didn't? I mean, seriously, 
right? I loved them. I thought they were great. But man, I know people that got so wrapped in in them. It was like, this is how it's going to happen. I'm like, um, y'all know that's fiction, right? Do we remember? I mean, when I was in grade school, I had a hard time. If we have any librarians around here, I'm sorry. But I had a difficult time remembering fiction and nonfiction, okay? Because fiction meant fake, and nonfiction meant not fake. How come they just didn't make up a word that was like real and fake, and we just called it that, you know? Why did we have to fiction and nonfiction use the same word twice with a little prefix on it and stuff? I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Sylvia. I'm so, I had such a hard time with that. But we got to remember, those books that we all love reading are fiction, right? They are. But I know people who have turned that into their whole theology of faith. And I'm like going, <clears throat> I'm like Douglas, hold up a minute. My faith has to be in Jesus. See, Jesus knew what he had to do. He knew he had to be the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. He knew he had to pay the price for sin, the price his creation could not pay on its own. And just because Jesus knew what was about to happen does not mean we're going to base our faith in Jesus knowing all the future. Because there's kind of a problem with that. We'll get to it. Here's the thing. Jesus is our example. You and I cannot know the future the way God knows the future. And I wonder sometimes if we put on God some attributes and we build our faith into these attributes that maybe really we ought not to be doing. Maybe we ought to take a step back and remember that it's the blood that paid for our sins and his resurrection that allows us to walk in his power. Oh, several years ago, I'll tell you a little story about myself. Several years ago, I had to, like Douglas said, I had to figure out why I believed what I believed. I was like 27, 28 years old. I, I was a pastor. I had even been ordained, I think, by that time. And here I am going, why do I believe this? And I kept coming up with the answer. Well, that's what my parents taught me. That's what grandma said. That's what my third grade Sunday school teacher said. That's what, and don't get me wrong. They didn't steer me in a wrong direction. But there comes a point in time in your life and in my life where we've got to say, okay, wait a minute. I got to know why I believe what I believe and own my own faith. Let's look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. And let's read this together this morning. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will always will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Before we go on in the scripture, because we got a little more, I forgot to put something in my sermon that I'm going to share with you. Do you not think that this answer is a little odd? The Greeks people, the Gentiles wanted to come see Jesus. And this is the answer he gives. He doesn't say, oh yeah, bring him on in. Do you understand what has happened here is now the word of Jesus, what Jesus is doing, what he has done, who he is. Remember, we're asking for people to come and see why do we believe Jesus is the Messiah? And now the rest of the world is seeing him. And Jesus is saying, you know what? The Jewish people have been seeing this for a while. They've been seeing it and hearing it. You know, the religious establishment's a little bit upset with me, but that's because they're, you know, losing control of a lot of different things. And now the Greeks, the Gentiles are coming in. It's time. The whole world is watching. The whole crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid, them, hid himself from them. God, would you add to your word, the word of God for the people of God. Can we all say together, thanks be to God. Amen. So I want to ask you about this passage. I want to ask you what you hear and you think and you think this. I want you to think about this because does this passage tell us that Jesus is all-knowing and that everything that is going to happen from this moment on all the way to the end of time, is Jesus going to do that? And should we put our faith in him because Jesus knows the future. Is that what the scripture is telling us? There's those that will make their argument. There are those that base, like I said, their entire faith in Jesus Christ around these ideas. But what's going to happen when things don't maybe go exactly the way they think they should go? In this scripture, we see verses 23 and 24, Jesus describes that he's going to die. We know that happened, right? In verses 32 through 33, the way he's going to die. By the way, you understand the man lifted up is a reference back to like numbers. Israel had been kind of naughty again. God sent some snakes. The snakes bit the people. God told Moses, fashion a couple of brass snakes around, lift them up on the pole. You know, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, if you read the whole chapter of John, chapter 3, you'll see Jesus referencing this again, and this is another reference to that. He's going to have to be lifted up. By the way, back in the Old Testament, God said, if you will lift those snakes up, anybody who looks upon them will not die. It doesn't say they won't be sick. It doesn't say they won't get bitten. It doesn't say that they won't, you know, maybe not feel good or, or have a bite mark on them, but it says they won't die. Isn't that kind of like us? If we look to the cross that Jesus died upon, we, we might have to feel this, the, the sickness from sin in this world. Our bodies will eventually die, but our spirits will live forever. Isn't that what Jesus says to Nicodemus? But there are those that want to stake their faith 
in Jesus knowing the future. And I, and I question that Jesus is telling us that here, um, that we are to believe in him simply because he knows the future. And of course, we all want to say that, yes, Jesus knew everything about the future, but is that really his life-giving, life-changing work to do in us? To create faith in him because he knows the future. I think it's a bit off point. And here's the thing. You ever taken a journey? I don't know. I did Cub Scouts when I was real little. I was like 10 years old. Um, we did Royal Rangers in the church that I grew up in. Every once in a while, you had to get a compass out, and you had to figure out where you were going on a map. Now, if you get one degree off on the map at the beginning, not that big a deal, is it? But when you get to where you think you're going, you're not going to be there. <laughs> You get one degree off and travel one mile, it may not be that bad of a course correction to make, but if you travel 10 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles, and I believe that Satan uses what I call WMDs. You remember what those used to be, weapons of mass destruction? I call them weapons of mass distraction, okay? I think Satan just wants us to get off one degree. And then when something doesn't go wrong, he, or the way we want it to, he yanks the carpet out from underneath us and our faith crumbles. John Wesley spoke about these few things. He said, there are three things that God cannot do. And I was like, what? I was very taken back from that statement at first. I was like, hold up a minute. I was almost offended. What do you mean there are three things? He said this, God cannot take away freedom or free will. God cannot contradict himself and God cannot undo what has been done. Uh, oh, I had to read a little more because in his sermon on this, I have to tell you, reading his sermons from way back then, their English was a wee bit different than ours is today. So I had to have some help from some friends of mine who are biblical scholars and get some help in this. Now, Matthew records in chapter 24 all sorts of future happenings that Jesus talks about, specifically around the return of the Messiah, and even includes some people in there who are going to falsely claim to be the Messiah, and he gives them signs to look for in the second coming. By the way, Daniel wrote about a lot of things in the first coming. You know that, right? The book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Daniel at the time was in captivity. Nebuchadnezzar had captured Israel. He was brought in. He actually was part of the group of um, what we would think of as Zoroastrian priests. They worshiped the stars. They looked to the stars. Now, Daniel had written some things in there telling when the future king of kings and the Lord of lords was going to be. And that's how we end up with the Magi. They are not Jewish people. I don't know if you know this. I hope I didn't just ruin somebody's faith on this. God works in and through whomever God wants to work in and through. They don't necessarily have to be following him. But the thing of it is, these guys would have for hundreds of years studied what Daniel wrote because at one point in time, Daniel saved the entire order of Zoroastrian priests. Nebuchadnezzar said, I have a dream. I'm sick and tired of telling you my dream and then you guys telling me what I want to hear. I think you're just making it up. So, gather all the priests together because I'm going to have you first off tell me what my dream is and then you can tell me what it means and if you don't get it right, you're dead. I will execute all of you. 
And they went rounding him up, and nobody could do it. They all complained. They finally get to Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel says, look, I just heard about it. The deadline's coming up. I need some time. I got to go pray. Daniel prays. God gives him the dream. God tells him what it was, tells him what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't execute anybody. Daniel saved that whole order. Do you think they might have paid attention to what he wrote down? He would have been a hero to them. That's how we get the wise men coming from the east to worship Jesus. They see the star of Bethlehem. They studied, they waited. When they saw it in the sky, they knew, by the way, Jesus talks about some of these things, but what are they? They're a sign for us to look for, to know, to be ready. So Matthew chapter 24, Jesus drops this huge bomb. 24 verse 36 says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels are in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. If you have wrapped up your faith in Jesus knowing everything about the future, guess what? I just kicked a hole in your wall of faith. Sorry. Later in that same chapter, Jesus talks about how much a surprise the return of the Son of Man is, the return of our Messiah. And he really tells us the heart of why we need to be aware of what's going to be happening. And by the way, we've been living in the end times for hundreds of years, okay? Literally. We've been in the end times, I would say, ever since Jesus left Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44 says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus is not giving us the end time stuff in the book of Matthew, because he knows it all. He just said he didn't. Jesus is giving it so we'll look and we'll watch and we'll listen and we will be ready. Why do we have the signs that point us to Jesus as a Messiah? Are they to create faith in him? Help us identify the one we put our faith in or do we put our faith in the signs? If we put our faith in the signs, we're gonna find ourselves in big trouble. We cannot put our hope and our trust and our faith in signs and wonders. You know, Jesus talking with, the, with the, the Pharisees, they kept demanding more signs and the crowds kept demanding more signs. And there's a couple of times where he just said, uh, I'm not doing anything because all you want is free food and free health care and you just want to see something fun. You're missing it. So we go back to our original text today and we see that we've got to put our hope and our trust and our faith in Jesus. And there's those scholars who want to hold tightly telling us that Jesus spoke about this foreknowledge of his death and then Jesus knows all of the future. And we've got to build our faith around God because he knows the future. That's a dangerous place to be. And here's why. I'm going I'm, I'm to start. That was my introduction. I'm going to start preaching now. <laughs> Salvation was made complete in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Write it down. Think about this for a minute. I said it 
in the past tense because it's already happened. It's done. Salvation was made complete. When we look at the crucifixion, we see Jesus' last words. The, the Bible, oftentimes we say it is finished or it is completed. But the actual words there in the Aramaic would have actually said the, the transaction is paid in full. It was more of a transaction business phrase than it was what we think of. Remember, there is a price for sin, right? There's a reason we talk about it that way is because in some of the original languages, that's how it's referred to. Jesus willingly gave up his life. No one took it from him. It was given up by his will, by him dying on the cross. The atonement that need needed for salvation was completed. It was paid in full. I don't know few years back before I got here, y'all sold some property, I think, and had a mortgage burning, didn't you? Were you paid the, paid the, yeah, didn't that happen several years back? What'd that feel like as a church to pay your mortgage off? All the board members go like this. That's kind of what it felt like, didn't it? That paid in full, it meant something. Because Jesus completed the atonement all the way back then, we can be saved from the controlling bondage of sin. Now, here, in this life. Eternal death and separation from God, gone. The fear of dying a physical death, I think it's interesting. There are a lot of Christians, or a lot of people who, I should say this, identify themselves as Christians who are afraid to die. What do you think Jesus did? How many of you remember the 23rd Psalm? I remember, I, I, I memorized it in the King James Version because growing up, that's all I had, right? But we get to that point in verse four where it says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, the dark valley of death, or like when I was growing up, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does it say next? I will fear no evil. I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Jesus, even when it comes to our time to die and leave this world and shed this moral body, dying that physical death, we don't have to be anxious about it. We don't have to fear because Jesus is going to be walking through it with us. That's what faith in Jesus' death and resurrection brings. His death in him, knowing the future didn't bring that. It's his death and resurrection. Only our faith in Jesus gives him permission to walk beside us on that journey of the darkest valley. There are just some days when I have to look at Satan and say, you know what? I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be anxious. God has called me to do this. You ever have those days? I have those days. As a pastor, I have those days. Second, I would say that the greater miracle here is not that Jesus knows the future, but that Jesus teaches us to live a submitted life. Jesus teaches us something in this point in time. This, I want you to write that down. Jesus teaches us to live a submitted life. 
John chapter 12, verse 27 says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. But look at what Jesus said in the first part of that. He says, my soul is troubled. And he had to call it out. Guess what we got to do when our soul is troubled? We got to call it out. Wait a minute here. I'm not called to live in fear. I'm called to live in the Holy Spirit. And the perfect love of the Holy Spirit drives out what? All fear. I don't have to be anxious. Seeing that Jesus knew the will of the Father for him to be the sacrifice that ends all sacrifice was not that Jesus was all-knowing. It was so that Jesus, being our example, would struggle as we struggle and then allow the Father's will to take precedent over his will. Because guess what? You and I are not going to know the future. And we don't have to. We just need to be ready. We see repeatedly in the Gospels where Jesus submits to the Father. John tells us in the beginning how Jesus is part of creation. By the way, that's where we get some of our theology on the Trinity. Jesus was there before the beginning of time that we know, and yet he submits himself to the Father. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There are people who count all these things, by the way. There are at least 47 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where Jesus tells us, I have come down to do the will of the Father. I have come here to do the will of the one who has sent me. When Jesus is questioned about doing miracles on the Sabbath and the Jewish leaders begin to persecute him, the answer he gives him in John chapter 5, verse 19, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. You see how we might maybe get wrapped up in some things we ought not to get wrapped up in? Great fiction. Not saying that. I read a novel every now and then. Most of the time I read theology books, though. I'm just a geek that way. That's just who I am. Somebody says, what are you reading? I'm like... Commentary on the book of Acts. Dr. Randy Craker used to ask me what I was reading. And I'd say, commentary? No, besides commentary. No, I'm reading commentary on Matthew. <laughs> it's brand new. I just got it the other day. I've already outlined, you know, lined up. I mean, I'm just geeky that way. That's just what I do. The last thing I want us to write down here is living the submitted life prepares us for God's work. Okay? This is important. This is where I think everything in this comes together. If you go back again to John 12, 27, Jesus said he needed not be troubled because why? He was prepared. He was ready. We can read scripture. We can know what the will of the Father is on how to live ready, right? We can do that. We don't have to worry about the details of the future, we may not know every detail of the calling God places before each one of us in different seasons of life. Do you realize God is still calling all of you? He doesn't just call pastors. <laughs> he calls all of us. When I got the call from Pastor Jerry, well, it was kind of a weird voice text messagey thing. I, I, I just looked at that and said, no, I can't do that. I kind of ignored him for a couple of weeks. Bobby told me, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, yeah, I can. 
She says, no, that's rude. And I'm like, well, half the district doesn't even know who Pastor Jerry is. They ignore him. I mean, I'm just, you know, hanging out with my friends. And, you know, I'm a, I, I, she's like, Dan, you can't do that. All right. I pick up the phone and I call him. Jerry, I don't think this is a good idea. I just don't think you... And I listed out this whole thing. And I said, you go back and check with your people and everything. And you see, because I'm just not sure. But I'll pray about it now, because before I was just saying no. I began to pray about it. Pastor Jerry calls me back, and he says, Dan, hey, you know, um, hey, I talked to my people. You're, they keep telling me you're the guy. You're the one. Okay, well, let's get together and meet. And as God began, and now that I've been here for a year and a half, I understand Hindsight's always better than foresight, isn't it? I get it. I understand it. But the thing of it is, I didn't know what God was going to know. But I knew God said, Dan, you've got to go. My wife says, Dan, we've got to go. Even my son Joshua, Dad, I really think you guys got to go. Okay, we're going. Don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. We may not know every detail of the calling God places before each and every one of us in the different seasons of life, but if our trust and our faith and our hope is in Jesus Christ, it's not going to matter. And it has to be on solid, right? You guys remember that song? My hope is built on nothing less than what? We used to really just antagonize the pianist. I grew up going to many different churches. One of them was a free will Baptist church. So a few of us musical people would sit up close the piano set like up here is all on one floor all on one level we used to sing the i hope is built on nothing less than schofield notes and scripture press and the pianist would hear us had her hair done up in tight little bun she'd look at us or i was sinking deep in sin Whee! she'd look over at me my wee was a little loud we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do you know why we sing that? Because it's solid theology. That's what everything else hinges on. You know what? You can tell me you have a different view of anything else in the Bible. I may not agree with you. I may not. But this one thing, this one thing is where we all have to be centered his death, and his resurrection. It works hand in hand. And we can rest assured that God's preparation, the deeper work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, prepares us today for ministry tomorrow. You see, God working in us is so that God can work through us. And if you're not having any through us, then let's find out why God's not working in you because he's not going to just work in you and have you not be doing something. He's called you something. He's called you to somewhere to some kind of ministry, and it's going to be different. Each and every one of us is going to be different. I got to tell you, there are somewhere between, and I don't know why there's such a big number here, but I kept reading about this, 456 to 574 prophecies about who the Messiah is going to be in the Old Testament. Now, that's, that's like 120-ish, 118 difference. I don't know why there's such a difference in the different people that you read. But let's just say there's between four and 500 for the sake of making round numbers. 
I also read that Jesus fulfills over 300 of those prophecies. And I looked through the list this last week. And do you know that not a single one of them says because he's all-knowing about every future event? I thought, well, that's interesting. But it does talk about a whole lot of places, how he's going to die, the suffering he endures, the blood he will shed, the sacrifice that he will be. You know, we put our hope and our trust and our faith in Jesus because through his death and resurrection, our salvation and the deeper work of the Holy Spirit within us that comes later on as we submit our will to God more and more to be more like the Father's will, that is where we put our faith, our hope, and our trust. And when we do that, we live ready. There are some people, I'm, I'm going to end with this, there, this little Nazarene joke. There are some people that believe um, that the rapture and um, the resurrection is all going to happen before the great tribulation. And then there are some people who think it's going to happen during a great tribulation or the great tribulation. And then there are some that still feel it's going to happen after the great tribulation. And guess what? The church of the Nazarene is not any of those. Those are pre, mid, or post-tribulationists. We're pan-tribulationists. If you're ready, it's all going to pan out. You don't have to worry about when it's going to happen. That's the joke, right? Okay? You guys have heard that because many of you are older than I am. You've probably heard that a hundred times if you've heard it once. But isn't that what Jesus is saying? Isn't that what Jesus said back in Matthew? Be ready. Don't worry about it. Know that it's coming. Here's some of the signs that are going to tell you it's coming. Don't get wrapped up in that. Just be ready. To me, that seems so much easier. Certain we need to look for the signs of Jesus' imminent return, but that's what they are. They're signs. And we need not get wrapped up in them to the point where we forget that the kingdom of God is here and now. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? The kingdom of God is here. Think about it. Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah. He, he reads it aloud, and then he says, and today you're witnessing that. That was my paraphrase on the end of it. But that's what he told them all. Boy, you want to get some Pharisees mad at you? Make that statement in synagogue on Saturday morning, let me tell you. That'll get you strung up really quick. Heal a crippled man, reach out and touch his arm, and his withered hand becomes whole. Heal a blind man by making some mud on the Sabbath. Do that kind of thing. That'll get you in trouble. But what are those? They are the signs we look for that guide us to the one Jesus Christ. And he preached that the kingdom of God is here and now, and we all have work to do in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it is today that we want to give you honor and glory and praise. And Lord God, we continually ask, Father, that you would keep us on track that we would put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus, not because of the miracles he did, not because 
of the signs and wonders, but because of his death and resurrection. Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah, the very Son of God, and that you paid our price for sin, dying on the cross, and that because you lived a sinless life, God resurrected you on the third day. And Jesus, after you ascended, you have sent us your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to make those life-lasting changes within us that we would become more like you each and every day. Holy Spirit, would you continue to do that deeper work within each and every one of us so that you can work through us? Lord God, bring us the opportunities to minister to the people you need for us to minister to as we go through our week. And then bring us back together, Lord God, to worship and praise you again next week. Lord God, I thank you for all that you've done. And I thank you for all that you're going to do you are a great, big God. In Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior, I pray. Amen.